welcome back to Be There with Dali Loudspeakers, the podcast that celebrates the minds behind the music. These podcasts tie in with Dali's own music magazine, also called Be There. I'm the editor. My name's Andrew Harrison. In Be There magazine, we look at the people and the stories behind great recordings from the past and the present. And you can get a free copy from the Dali Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash dali.loudspeakers. As well as the magazine, we're celebrating the launch of Dali's brand new Oberon series of loudspeakers. They're designed to bring the high-end audiophile sound of Dali's top-of-the-range Epicon speakers to a wider market. In the Oberon series, you get some of the key Epicon technologies in a more affordable setup. They'll change the way you hear music, as we're going to hear later. I've got two guests with me today to talk about some of what's in Be There magazine, and they're also going to nominate their studio heroes and the single Greatest Five Seconds in All of Pop. We're going to add those songs to our ever-expanding Tidal playlist on the Dali Facebook page. Kate Mossman is the arts editor of The New Statesman and a regular writer and broadcaster on BBC Radio 4 and BBC 4 on the TV. She's a former writer for The Word magazine. She was such a hardcore Queen fan in her youth that she made her family go on holiday in Cornwall just so she could stalk Roger Taylor. Hello, Kate. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. We're going to be talking about Queen in intensive detail later, but why was your teenage Queen fandom so intense? Um, because I went to a girls' school and uh, I travelled a lot every day on a long bus ride, so I just had my Walkman and a pair of headphones and no boys. It was just you and Freddie <laughs> in a world well, of your me, own. Yeah, me, Freddie, and then it moved to the drama when I came of age. Yeah, was... why Roger in particular? Because he was pretty. <laughs> was it, was, <laughs> it, was, it, pa- was it his powerful fills and uh, <laughs> metronomic I never even thought about keeping. his skill as a drummer, but I, I created a fiction that he was a very complex, deep individual. I'm sure he is, but, you know, it was in my head. Well, you actually did, uh, firstly, you managed to track him down, didn't you, on the uh, on the family holiday in a cinema, I believe. Yes, in the Truro uh, cinema, and, I, and my brother and I followed him in and sat behind him while he watched Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> did, he, did he detect your presence? He didn't, but we asked for an autograph afterwards and he ah, right. stepped back as though he was being mugged. Oh dear. So. But you did actually interview him later as yeah, a couple actual of working times. grown up. A couple of times. And it's that weird suspension of, of you know reality, so I just thought I'd have to put that teenage girl aside and I was just quite quite confident. But he, he's so elliptical that he finishes his answers in like 10 or 11 words, so it was the only interview I've ever done where I actually ran out of questions and I still had 20 minutes left, so it's quite surreal. Really? Oh, that's a, so a, a transcriber's dream, at least. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, God. We're going to be talking more Queen a little bit later. Also with us is the prolific author and music fan, Travis Elberer, who has written books as diverse as Wish You Were Here, England on Sea, and Letters to Change the World, from Pankhurst to Orwell. Well, the one we're really interested in is The Long Player Goodbye, How Vinyl Changed the World, His History of the Flat Black Plastic Disc. Hello, Travis. Hello. Welcome to the show. Pleasure. Now, The Long Player Goodbye had quite an interesting history, didn't it, in that as soon as you started writing it, vinyl started to bounce back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, minute, the minute you declared it dead, it came back to life again. There's nothing Thing like that, is there? Declaring something dead and experiencing an enormous revival straight afterwards. But. So uh, presumably you had to go uh, undergo ongoing revisions and repairs and revisals while you were doing it? Yeah, I mean, at that point, the, everyone was still really rather obsessed with seven-inch singles. The mm-hmm. LP had, had yet to enjoy its kind of major comeback at that point. Yeah, so the seven-inch single was the, the infamous kind of you know, vinyl as objet d'art. It's kind of a slightly lost, it. a lost leader for for, yeah. for the landfill indie bands that you so accurately kind of <laughs> named back in the day, Andrew. I think yeah. that was that was it. I mean, you know, it's that point where I mean, talking ten years ago now, where almost the only way that bands could force people to listen to an entire LP rather than breaking it up on their iPod was to play it in a concert format and mm. have people seated. Like yeah. You couldn't, you know, shuffle the tracks. Were there particular things while you were writing the book that you kind of? that you discovered that surprised you about the about the the deeper history of the vinyl record because yeah i mean we tend to think of you know in terms of the you know the the great rock opus but actually mm. this is a consumer item with 
you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, yeah, I mean, I think that the, some of the most fascinating stuff actually was almost in the early days of of, of the LP, where uh, this first boom in in hi-fi mania. Uh, and people having recordings of steam trains and comedy, a whole kind of whole sit-down audience for stand-up comedy. Because of course, yeah. in this sort of post-war period, you have you know suburbanisation. You have more people spending greater times in their own homes. So the idea of having a stereo as a form of home entertainment and opening up all these different uh, landscapes of um, of music and sound and you know travel, great boom in, in sort of travelogue records, recordings of you know music or kind of found sounds from across across the world. Emery Cook, he's also a, a great force behind um, steam train records, you know, devises, stereo, invents kind of stereo for the sort of first time in order that he can record, um, you know, steel pan drums, you know, in the Caribbean and so on. And those are being consumed across the world. So somehow the, the exotic is being brought into people's homes and listened to on these records. It's brilliant, isn't it? The idea that a technological development is what really, because, you know, then using stereo becomes a rock band tool and becomes mm. a, a you know kind of a studio production dub tool. Yeah. But I love the idea that somewhere in the in the nineteen forties, basically orb records are being made, but you know with birdsong and lapping, you know, yeah. waves lapping and bits of bits of. Well, I mean, all, I mean, I love a lot of that exotica stuff. Anyway, this sort of Arthur Lyman stuff, where you have you know. You know Bird song and you know people knocking on bits of wood and, and, and trying to create the idea of a sort of Hawaiian lagoon sound. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if Hawaii has lagoons, but it sounds like it should, doesn't it? It might, it might, it might, it might well. But the, you know the lapping beach and the lies, yeah. you know, that, and, and having a drink served in a coconut, which mm. you, you know someone someone is trying to recreate in an apartment in Brooklyn with a can of you know. Schlitz or something. Or something. We're starting yeah. to use these binaural microphones now. Have you heard about this in radio production? Ooh. Where they just pick up um, a hell of a lot more detail. So there's a show on Radio 4 at the moment where they're, sh- they're following uh, various characters around there. And then the, the one last week was... Um, the main sort of the, the most notorious paparazzi guy in the UK, and he goes down to Cornwall to try and get pictures of David Cameron so that he can fat shame him on the beach. <laughs> yeah. But they've got they've got one of these microphones pinned to him, and you you detect the difference between when he's in his office to when he's getting into the train and then into the helicopter. And so in a way, it's like you're seeing it because you can you can hear the sound enlarging and then shrinking mm. with him. And apparently, it just makes a hell of a lot sort of more intense experience of listening to it. Imagine if you had amazing, lovely Dali speakers that you could hear this. Fa- Incredible detail. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Imagine. 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 <laughs> I wanted to ask you, Travis. I mean, we, we everybody talks about the warmth and the sound of vinyl, and I mean, I think it's often dependent on the kind of music you're playing on it. You True. Know? Yeah. If you like rough electronic music, like I me, mean, there's no point in getting that beautiful warmth out of it. Yeah. But is the thing that makes vinyl work really just the ritual that not I, only do you <clears> put the needle on, but you've got to turn it over as well? I mean, for me, yes. I mean, I, I, I mean, in some respects, I, 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 this is a terrible phrase, but I almost feel that, that if you've grown up with vinyl, it's almost like having some. Like a Catholic education, you know, you're not going to escape this. But you know, because there's an awful lot of cloths, there's a lot of wax involved. You know, you've, there's the, taking it out of the sleeve, putting it on, and so on. And um, yeah, I, I think certainly a degree, and even the contemporary revival in vinyl is slightly a fetishistic one, isn't it? Because in yeah. a way you're attempting to turn back the clock and listen to this music, some of it as it was originally intended to be listened to. Yeah. Whether, whether the musicians themselves would agree with with some that's another matter. Um, you know, some of them wanted it to be played on or something maybe even more extreme and high end, and, and were completely annoyed about having having two two sides of an album and having to work out. But for other people, responded to that challenge. Yeah, 
I mean, I, I always thought that, uh, you know, the, the, just the, the most wonderful thing about about vinyl was that, you know, you were buying a thing that felt like a piece of art that you could kind of, you could build up your representation of yourself on the shelves by the spines and on CDs just aren't really the same, are they? And yet I, I can't remember the last time I bought any vinyl. You know, I've, <laughs> I've completely gone CD and, and stuck with it. Kate, do you have a particular treasured bit of vinyl? Um, I had a lot of sort of strange picture discs in the 90s, which I, I sort of rather miss those, the sort of wobbly, warped, sort of shaped ones that you sort of see spinning around. I don't think they ever played quite as well as the real things. The yeah. pressings of them, wasn't it, yeah. as well? They were. I mean, coloured vinyl must still be around, right? Yeah. Well, apparently yeah. it's bigger than ever, I'm told, bigger than ever, because the, it, you will now do limited runs of things, and then to have, you know, you'll, you'll want to do an extended run of it sells out, but it's got to be different, so bigger yeah. than bright orange vinyl. Mm. And th- does that include the novelty-shaped ones? Because I've got uh, um, born in the USA, which is the shape of the uh, stars and you know the Star Spangled yeah, Banner. Yeah, I've got an Art of Noise record shaped like a tortoise, which is particularly attractive. <laughs> yeah. My my worst uh, shaped final record, uh, I mean, most embarrassed to confess this one was a bat shaped record by a goth band called the Specimen, who used to run the Bat Clave Club in so <laughs> shaped like a bat. <laughs> yeah. But it's kind of a bit of a letdown because it's just still the same circle in the middle, right? Yeah. It'd be great if they had a needle that had to go all around the crazy wiggly outline. Yeah. I'm sure that somebody. I'm, but I'm, no doubt Brian Eno has considered this as a completely new way of making music. <laughs> over the summer, Kate and Travis brought their favourite records over to my house in North London for a very special experiment. The idea was my favourite album as I'd never heard it before. We set up some Dali Rubicon, Callisto and Epicon speakers to get the full range of sonic detail from these much-loved records, which, let's be honest, we might not always have played on the finest equipment over the years, especially when we were poor and penniless students. This week we tried it again with the new Dali Oberon speakers. Travis Elber, the record you chose as the one you wanted to hear properly, possibly for the first time ever, was Laughing Stock by Talk Talk. Why is that? Fill us in. What, where, where did you fall in love with this record? I fell in love with it when it when it came out, which is in in 1991. Um, I, I, I think I feel in a way that Talk Talk, rather a little bit like Julian Cope, were acts that served as sort of gateway drugs to other kind of sonic adventures. Yeah. Um, and Talk Talk had, had gone from being this kind of very poppy, ele- almost electro pop band, um, and suddenly with the Color of Spring, which was released in 1986, I think. Um, they re-emerged as rather long-haired types wearing paisley shirts and sort of round glasses and mining some lost dream of the 1960s with a sort of pop pastoral thing. And that developed in the next album, which was called um, Spirit of Eden. Um, and, and they were just kind of moving further and further away from pop um, and, and moving into something that, that you know, was almost a precursor to things like po- what we describe as post-rock mm. um, with Laughingstock, which, which is their... Their, their final album, um, recorded in conditions of, of close to insanity <laughs> uh, with, you know, blacked in windows um, over a period of about seven months uh, with various members, you know, having almost nervous breakdowns. And, um, and you know, inv- Mark Hollis, the, the sort of leader of, of the group, you know, inviting various people to come in and improvise over sections of tracks. Apparently we're not actually playing them the whole song, just getting them to improvise a little bit and then, <laughs> and then kind of adding that into the pile and discarding, you know, hours and hours worth of recording before assembling this um, this magnum opus, in, in my opinion. Yeah. I think so it's they never absolutely... had the full picture of what they were No, half of them didn't. <laughs> half, of them really? yes. anyway, so they, half of them probably didn't even know if they ended up on the, re- by the, end, in the end where they ended up on the record at all, either. Control freakery. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Hearing it again through these, the Callistos and the, and, and the Oberons, I remember you, you sort of 
spotting, oh, I hadn't heard that before. Oh, what's that? Oh, what's this? Yeah. I mean, was it a different experience? Very much so. I mean, I, it, it's... It's a fundamentally, I, I would argue, it's, it seems almost like an album which is about, partly about silence. It's the full stop at the end of their career. Yeah. Um, it's very, very spacious as a record in the sense that um, often there's not a lot going on. There's a lot of silence in between the tracks. Almost, It's one of those things, the gaps in between are what kind of make it interesting occasion um a very very um interesting sort of drumming work on it by, by lee harris who was the it was in the band from the beginning when the end became other than mark hollis the only original member left um it's got a kind of um a, a sort of jazzy vibe about it certainly i mean I, at, the, at the time i hadn't heard things like in a silent way by miles davis but it's clearly mining some yeah. of that thing so I, I suppose the thing about hearing it on these amazing um speakers is that you know all of the the space and the aeration which is in the songs often because some of them in the opening part of the um the album merman is about you know 10 seconds of a sort of amp hum uh, as your kind of introductory element to the thing before sort of sounds come in into 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 view is not quite the word but into 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 consciousness um and the album is a lot like that you know it sounds kind of rise up and dip away like it has a kind of oceanic quality i remember (laughs) you saying that um that in particular at the home because Mm. most of us we grow up with fairly cheap stereos and to hear it on these you're like oh that's what it's really like oh that's (laughs) the the reality well going back to kate's idea of the biennial thing you know it it, it, you you sound you feel like you're in the room with some of these instruments um i mean the 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 thing for the 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 horror for their record company uh, was of course that you know a there were no there's only six songs on it none of which are a single uh, in any means whatsoever and because of the nature of which it was composed it could never be played live yeah, uh, so so it, so it remains a kind of an takes a, all the boxes. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, it can only really exist within yeah. recorded music format, and so that's the wonder of listening to it as high end as you can, because in a sense that it's not a record which is about. There are certain records where hearing it hearing it on a cheap stereo is part of part of the thrill. Mm. For this, I think you do really need to hear it in yeah. as, as high a quality as possible in order to appreciate a the mania and <laughs> and, and studio madness yeah. that went into its creation. So you can um, not you can not only hear the silences, but you can also hear the people who made the record having a nervous breakdown yeah, while yeah, you're yeah. listening. It's close to that. I think yeah. it's probably, and I suppose in some respects, you know, given the insanity of, the, of which it was made, it it it, it, it treating treating it with the right level of respect. Yes, <laughs> on that rather than just having it on some degraded MP3 that you're yeah. going to you know listen to on your phone. It is not basically it's not a record to be listened to on the phone. Yeah. Um, and then also, it's, it is a record. I mean, he himself argued, you know, it's rather like Lou Reed with his New York album, that it should be listened to in one whole, you know, one sitting, effectively, you know, rather like a play or a, a performance. Mm. And I think listening to it on these speakers, you do, you know, you, 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 you can go with it in that yeah. way, actually. You can, you can submit to it, to its will. Yeah. I'm making this sound a bit Nietzsche, you know? it's not really quite <laughs> what I was intending. But... Submit to its will. Kate Mossman, speaking of Nietzsche and will, your, your choice was actually pretty much the prime, prime opposite of Laughing Song by Talk to you It chose, was. You chose The Miracle by Queen. And I, and I sort of was embarrassed, wasn't I, listening back to it. You should with, never be embarrassed about the songs that you love. You should never be embarrassed about the music you like. Well, I think it says a lot, really, because so much of music to me is very personal. I'm almost embarrassed by my love for certain things, and I shouldn't be, but the idea of actually putting it out to an audience, it makes me quite neurotic. <laughs> 
chaotic. My heart pounds. What do they think of this this drum fill? I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but I think that part of that comes from the experience of when it was first digested. So when mm. you are like walking the dog up the field when you're 12 years old, it is your thing. No one else in the world is listening to it. Mm. Um, and Queen um, produce all their own records. So they are control freaks. And from very, very early on in their career, they got rid of their producer. And you can hear them develop. And the critically acclaimed albums are the ones in the 70s now, looking back. Yeah. Queen, Queen were not liked by journalists for a long time. But they are, you know, they're sort of densely layered, um, extremely ambitious, uh, the classic Bohemian Rhapsody harmonies and all this kind of thing. And then the fat guitar sound. And all that kind of stuff's going on in the 70s albums, but I find it's quite difficult to listen to because I think they were still learning how to put space into their records and you'd get something that sounded extremely tinny against something that sounded extremely thick and fruitful. And in the 80s, they became quite, um, you know, they followed fashions and they became very good at synths and space and uh, sort of... Hot uh, space, in fact. Yeah, very that, good at hot exactly, space, yeah. electronic sort of kinds of, of music. And the reason I chose The Miracle was that it's unlike either of those two phases in their, in their career and it is a bit like Travis's record, it's a full stop because... It's the penultimate album they did. And um, they recorded it live pretty much uh, in um, Goldhawk Road and in Switzerland. And there's something about it which is it's extremely big in its sound, but it's there's, it's loose and it's full of space and it's full of, um, of uh, I don't know, almost like a sense of... Um, of human error and yeah. um uh i don't know there's there, there are moments there where you, that you actually hear a silence that you can you can almost hear it's like falling through space listening to it well, you were remarking while we were playing them on the on, on the dalis like oh my god it sounds so big and so look, big. look this big gap here this you know the, it's the spaces that make the drums yeah. so enormous that's the weird thing there is a i mean i think maybe it's partly unconsciously because there's a video where roger taylor put a load of water on top of his snare and he hits it really hard and the the little beads of water fly up into the air in slow mm. motion so i think i'm hearing that in this particular gap between two drum beats but I don't know how they got this sound they were so good by this point that they were a sealed unit and they didn't let anyone else in on their process and they argued about every single beat and every single note that was yeah. in the record um, and it's with any really well produced record you should be able to just think I don't know what they did there I don't yeah. know how how is that silence being made because I don't think silence sounds like anything but obviously it does because it's like a yeah. kind of thing what was that you know also, it's quite a poignant record in the whole kind of story of Queen, is it? Because Freddie's just got his health diagnosis, yeah, and they're kind so of aware of it. Exactly. So that it's when they when they kind of tucked themselves away. Uh, they knew they had limited amount of time, and they decided to split the royalties for the first time four ways instead of claiming their their different album credits. Um, and yeah, they just locked themselves away and worked really hard. So it's that adds to uh, its sense of urgency for me, and also possibly the idea that maybe that's why they did record it live. I don't exactly know where it was done, whether it was in a kind of great big hangar or something like that that they put everything together. But it feels like four people playing rather than um, bits stitched together from their from their different contributions, the way you sometimes feel a, a little bit in the seventies albums. The one you really went mad for and you were hopping around my front room was to, uh, was it all worth it? The gigantic, the most epic, <laughs> ridiculously over-the-top, operatic, mega thing. Yeah, almost like a kind of self-reflexive comment on this is... OK, guys, you think Queen songs sound over-the-top? Here we yes. go. And it's a, it's kind of... His voice had got a real... Um, 
hard edge to it. It sounds a bit like a strangulated cat in some of the, <laughs> the sort of songs on The Miracle. Um, it screams a lot. So it's got that kind of uh, metal sort of edge to it. The, the guitar, the guitar's very heavy, but then it's got this ridiculous cod operatic section with timpani and with what I used to think were strings, but listening to them on these speakers, I realised were actually synth strings. So it's not actually that mysterious. It's someone just pu- pumping away on a synthesizer, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think what's funny is that I thought growing up that you can't ever hear a better experience of a, a record than when you've got earphones jammed right down your ear canals and you've got it turned up so loud that it's actually bad for your health. And yeah. I, that's the way I listen to, and it's still the way I listen to music a lot of the time. But it's the space that you get more of a yeah. sense of when you hear it on good speakers. You know. Who's the heir to that Queen wedding cake, super ornate sound? Gosh, I, I mean, mean Muse, people talk about Muse, don't they? But it's not quite the same. Yeah, the Muse are kind of they're sort of there, but to, to me, it always feels a bit like they're kind of trying too mm. hard or something. I mean, I, I think bands like Field Music are very good at the um, the epic feel, um, but then they sort of remind me a bit of sort of Abbey Road's Beatles as well. So yeah. lots of sections and, and lots of experimentation. But I think it's a lot more fashionable to be like that than it was when Queen were operating. So. Yeah. On this series of podcasts, we're searching for the elusive holy grail in music, the greatest five seconds in all of pop. Everybody's got their own idea of what that is, so we're asking our guests to choose theirs, that unmatchable moment where everything lifts off into some other dimension. Travis Elbra, Chronicle of... <laughs> I didn't realise it was supposed to be the... the, the, in the, the I thought it was just pick one because it would be fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to have to choose one anyway. What is the greatest five seconds in pop for you? Well, for me, maybe it's just the season because we're in September now and the kids are going back to school, so it's the complete reverse of this. But um, I've always had a soft spot. It's, it's, it's an incredibly dubious in a way with, of of records that have that have you know like kids singing in them and something. Yeah. Like, you know, Ron, you know, Roy Woods. I wish it could be Christmas every day, where you can hear that the children singing in the choir have pronounced Brummy accents. Mm. Um, the sort of kids screaming at the end of. Uh, playground twist by Susie and the Banshees. It's just odd the way that those sounds intrude. But I've always really loved um, "Schools Out" by Alice Cooper. Yeah. Not for not for the chorus and not for kind of you know the opening riff, which as lovely as it is, but for the strange little refrain, which just goes you know no more pencils, no yeah. more <laughs> because it's just it's this strange moment of calm within the record. Like, the whole record is very bombastic, mm. and then it sort of dips into this little refrain uh, and and, that, and that's just a lull before the, and then you have the kind of drum beat picks up again and it yeah. kind of kicks back into the song but the, the in this 3 minute song you have these curious and they're rather haunting little dips with that uh, that refrain being set um and then a little bit later on, you get the kids themselves kind of singing, you know, No More Innocence. It's a great, it's a great song for, for kind of wordplay, I, I noticed re-listening to it, where it just says, you know, um, we've got no class, we've got no principles. Yeah. Um, you know, which is about, obviously, it's an educational metaphor, but it's actually also about them, yeah. themselves as, as characters. Um, and I think, you know, it's a classic. It's a 1972. It's a, a sort of glam rock monster tune. Um, yeah. And I, uh, you know, picking up, in a way, in all of those... Those elements that people took from, the, you know, Spectre Productions previously and so on, but 
there's just something so mournful about that little refrain of no more pencils. Well, the, ki- the kids' choir is a great thing in pop, and you could make an argument that it's actually the essence of pop because it's children singing what they shouldn't sing. So, you know, like on another brick in the wall, or, you know, Rolling Stones, you can't always get what you want, or even Jay-Z, Hard Knock Life, although that's kind of stolen from the musical idiom, isn't it? Um, do Kate, do Queen have any kids' choirs or any of their records? I can't oh, believe no, they don't. they'd probably just imitate them themselves, wouldn't they? Oh, they'd just pitch it up, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah. well, or just not pitch it up, just sing it really high. Absolutely. What's your own perfect five? <laughs> seconds in pop i like um weirdly geeky little bits of music that have a story behind them and you wouldn't actually know until you heard the story and then every time you go back to the song you're like you know so i've chosen the uh, very very famous bit of call me owl by paul simon mm. uh, which is the little bass solo in the middle played by bakiti kamalo a sowetan musician who was actually heavily heavily influenced by weather reports so you know in terms <laughs> yeah. of your why not in terms of your sort of cross-pollination there yeah. that was his background um it was his birthday. They're in the studio and he got his slap bass out. And Simon said, oh, you know, play for a couple of bars. And he said, oh, it's my birthday. Can I play a bit longer, please? And Simon's like, OK, all right. You know, we're going to go for lunch. But if it sounds good, then we'll keep it in. So he did this like weird slap run that's very intricate. And then the engineer, Roy Haley, for who knows why, decided to chop it in half and then flip one half of it and stick it onto the first half. So this is a palindromic bass solo. Oh, wow. So mm. it goes... I mean, it's impossible to imitate by voice, but maybe we shall hear it, but um, it goes... like that, and then it goes... It climbs back up, and it's actually a forward and a backward splice together. And uh, the, weirdly, I don't know whether it was the story of it or the fact that it just catches the attention because the entire song stops and this happened. When I saw um, Paul Simon do his farewell show in Hyde Park recently, it's funny, it's like 50,000 people... And everyone in the crowd stopped for this bass solo. Wow. <laughs> and I mean, you know, these are, crowds sing along to lyrics, right? They don't go... But it reminded me of actually seeing a Muse show where everyone was singing along to a guitar solo. And I thought, I like it when humans are stretched a little bit. But mm. God knows why the engineer made that decision to, to do that, but it's famous. So we've established then that the best pop record of all time would have a children's choir and a backwards bass solo exactly. on it at the same time. <laughs> OK, listeners, if you're a musician, go off and make that. <laughs> We like to celebrate the very best of studio professionalism in Be There magazine and the podcast. The care, the intuition, the expertise that transforms a great song into a timeless recording. But sometimes you just have to put a microphone on a side of raw pork and punch it for percussion effects like Scott Walker did on his album The Drift in 2007. The best recording techniques are sometimes the weirdest and the most unorthodox. So we thought we'd talk about some of them and ask what they bring to the recording process. Travis Elbert, do you have any favourite weirdo recording techniques? I suppose the most, the most famous examples of studio madness, beyond Talk Talk even, uh, were Brian Wilson's uh, uh, sort of instructions for the sessions of, of, the, of Smile, the famously lost LP of the, of the 1960s, where he would have a, you know, a sandpit in the studio and insist on members putting firemen's helmets on during recordings of particular songs. Um, I mean... Kate's actually already mentioned Roy Halley, and, and, and who's one of the great studio engineers and, and worked with Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. Um, on you know most of their sort of big hits, and he famously used to record large sections of the drum parts in the lift at the studio because he loved the the sort of yeah. echo sound you got there. I mean, I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of um, of the output of the eccentric British producer Joe Meek, uh, oh. who who obviously operated from uh, above a leather shop on the Holloway Road in London, uh, and would deploy all manner of kind of mad things to uh, pr- produce percussive effects or speeding up vocals. I mean, the most um, 
a kind of uh, interesting example is a, a record he did with Humphrey Littleton, who people may know for kind of Radio 4 comedy shows of, of, of old. Um, but he was a huge figure on the sort of trad jazz scene. Um, and so he went to record a track um, with Meek. Um, called Bad Penny Blues and Littleton made the mistake or perhaps the, the advantage because it then became a hit of, of going on holiday between the time between the, the track was recorded and it was released and in the meantime uh, Meek sp- sped up um, the sort of the, the, the whole sound of the record uh, upped up the noise on, on the sort of the percussion distorted the sound of the piano and fiddled around with, with the trumpet and, and Littleton when he heard it was absolutely horrified by what Meek had done <laughs> to, uh, to this record but it became a hit in fact Hunt Littleton's only kind of top 40 hit but Meek would do things like you know percussive instruments he would he would um there's a um a version of Love is Strange where he used a milk bottle with a with a knife to, to kind of create the percussive effect yeah. he would take the bass drum away and the bass drum on most um Meek tracks is him himself thumping uh, a kind of wooden board in the studio. He would record stuff in in the bathroom with a kind of lead coming out of it. And, you know, and, and yeah. many, plenty of musicians who attempted to come to Meek's studios were horrified by it. Now you mentioned things. that thumping a wooden board, it makes me think of Have I the Right by the Honeycombs, which has yeah, got yeah. a most amazing bang. Yeah. Come right back. Yeah. I just can't bear it. Yeah. I can actually picture Joe Meek going yep. mad in the uh, in the ill-fated studio where he made all of his recordings and eventually murdered his landlady. Also, I mean, also De- Denny, the singer of um, The Honeycombs was, is speeded up, so mm. again, you could never, it's like, it's up about a pitch, so live, you could never, never quite sort of It's match. not about live, it's about the studio. I mean, uh, there's, a, a, there's a world of this these ridiculous techniques. I mean, famously, John Lennon sang into an underwater microphone protected by a condom on Yellow Submarine. <laughs> they never actually used that in the final mix, but it's out there somewhere. You mentioned the Beach Boys. Sometimes it, th- there are studio incentives that can be unorthodox. Apparently, the rest of the Beach Boys used to feed him a cheeseburger every time he finished a song. Oh, God. Yeah, absolutely. I like the fact that you've got some, uh, you know, there's some techniques, obviously, which are uh, extremely geeky ones where you're, you're just discovering that a sound works well in a particular way. And then when you've got things like the sand pit and the, and the fire helmets, I mean, it's almost like that's a very clever way of trying to shake the people in the studio out of the natural fog yeah. that overcomes yeah, yeah. them. Where in the, when they're in a room with no light, chain-smoking heavily for sort yeah. of 12 hours on an end, you, you've got to have somebody who's kind of a bit of a, a psychology master to come in there and go, OK, guys, you know, but it goes let's the kind have of, some thoughts. Yeah, it goes from the Brian Eno approach. I mean, he actually codified it into the Oblique Strategies cards, the famous yeah. cards which just have a single little thing written on them, like, honour your mistake as a hidden intent. Or you know, or use an old idea, or work at a different speed. My favourite was go slowly around the edges. You know, yes. right. which you could say to a jazz musician, and they would understand. They'd be able to translate that yeah. into music quite effectively. So you I don't also, think it's that abstract. You mm. could tra- you could uh, you, you could give that advice to a landscape gardener. You know, yeah. it's, it's yeah. widely widely applicable. Although I don't think you should apply on your mistake as a hidden intent too often. Um, <laughs> but then so, sometimes it's sometimes it's at the other end of the kind of applied psychology thing. Be it you know Bob Dylan making everybody change their instruments for. Mm. Rainy Day Women number twelve and number thirty five, or Bob or, or Phil Spector pulling a gun on you. I mean, that's not uh, yeah, the that's, kind of, that's yeah, the yeah. extreme. Isn't that's it? the inspiration. That, that <laughs> the, you... Leonard, the Leonard Cohen one, wasn't it? You know, I love you, Leonard. Or something. He said, "Well, brandishing the pistol." And Leonard Cohen would uh, be recording "Death of a Ladies Man," which may have been a comment on that particular <laughs> contrapart. Um, he just said, I, "I hope you do, Phil," or words to that effect. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, yeah. "I really hope you do." Well, it's funny you mentioned. Um, uh, you know, talk, talk, Mark Hollis making people play on songs they couldn't fully hear. Yeah. Because the Ice School Works, Liverpool band, they have a track where all four of the band recorded their parts separately without hearing the other three, apart from they just had the key and they mm. had the rhythm. Yeah. 
and they had to play along, and it's called Acid Hell Nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, and it sounded weird in 1984, but I listened to it again this week, and it doesn't actually sound that strange anymore. Maybe it's because I've had my, my kind of possibilities have been expanded by listening mm. to tons of, of ridiculous kind of, uh, sort of genre-stretching rubbish, or maybe you just, you know, maybe, you just, I don't know, you just key into these things, don't you? Yeah, presumably they had their keys, and they had their mm. time signature, and then they were just let free with what yeah. they wanted to do. Well, sometimes the, the, the technique that changes everything is really cheap and cheerful. Quincy Jones had Michael Jackson sing his vocal overdubs on Billie Jean through a six-foot-long cardboard tube. <laughs> Cheapest effect ever, and it produced, you know, in terms of bang for the buck, a disused piece of wallpaper but <laughs> to produce a song that is the greatest sell you could possibly imagine. It's amazing because you've got to I mean what kind of brain imagines that might work and tries it out it's a bit like I always think you know how do people come up with recipes <laughs> how, yeah. does, how does amazing food combinations actually happen and it's somebody who's got the foresight to think okay I'm going to get this toilet roll and bend yeah. it in half. And, but also the, on Billie Jean in particular this is at a time when they knew that literally hundreds of millions of dollars are riding on this album so it takes a certain kind of confidence to go, why don't we use a cardboard tube rather than why don't we spend six weeks on a 48-track digital studio trying to get this right? Now, hang on, throw that wallpaper away, give us this. You know, We could talk about this all day. I possibly should at some point. <laughs> but we're coming to the end of the show and it's time for our guests to name their studio heroes, the unsung musicians, mixers, producers or backroom talents who make the great records great. Kate Mossman. Well, unsung doesn't apply here. And mm. I would say, actually, that, I mean, I'm not emotionally attached to this guy or this guy's work, but I'm fascinated by Greg Kirsten at the moment. All oh, right. Because he is, as they would say, the producer du jour, which mm. I hate that phrase. But in this year, I think he's done Lily Allen, Foo Fighters, Beck, Paul McCartney. He's the person everyone goes to now. And I went to interview churches in New York, and they had auditioned a lot of producers, including um, Dave Stewart. Yeah. And they turned them all down, and they said the reason they wanted to work with Kirsten was that he just joined the band. He just very quietly joined right. the band. Uh, he was interested in what they were going to have for lunch and talking about very mundane things like that. And he sat down at a piano, and he started to play chord progressions that they they thought, hang on, that's what we would have come up with. Right. And I was trying to work out why Greg Kirsten is like this, because he's an engineer as well, and you know, what is his thing? And apparently he's a jazz piano player, so his background is in bebop. Um, <laughs> he went to school with Dweezil Zappa, and he that's, that's what he can do, and he can improvise. So he's useful to people like Paul McCartney now, because he can come along and come up with a song structure that McCartney might have written in his mm. heyday and then give it back to him. So he can kind of reactivate old musicians yeah. and he can match what a band like Churches already do and make it sound like a bit more of a hit and stuff. So it's a very kind of shape-shifting identity. So he's an external brain. Yes. Fantastic. Uh, Travis, well, who's your studio well, here? Um, I've, I've, um, I've chosen Clem Catini, the mm. legendary session drummer who's uh, played on over 50 number one UK, UK number ones um, and the, the rumour always has it that, he, that one particular day where he did four sessions and all of those four sessions then were, were UK number one wow. singles uh, in the <laughs> 1970s so he, he I mean he, he begins with Johnny Kidd and the Pirates um, he was uh, he's a London he was born in, in Stoke Newington of, uh, of Italian extraction and actually his his father was interned during the um, the Second World War as an, as an enemy alien on wow. the Isle of Wight um, but he played with Johnny Kiss on the right so he plays on you know British rocks you know, 
I think actually formative years. Form- formative, yeah. well, the formative single, Shaking All Over. And then he joins the Tornadoes and does, does stuff with Joe Meek, um, playing on Telstar. But he's on, you know, he's on everything essentially. He's on, you know, Get It On. He's on Kung Fu Fighting. Uh, he's on Kung yeah, Fu Fighting. <laughs> That's a little bit frightening. He's also on, you know, The Wombles, uh, you know, <laughs> Benny Hill, uh, you know, Ernie, the fastest milkman in the West. He had no standards. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just did anything. Well, he, I interviewed him recently and, and he. And for some reason or other, the, the, the topic of Delia Derbyshire came up, and, he, and it turned out he had played on some Delia Derbyshire wow. tracks. No but of course, he had, could no, have no had no memory of what on earth they were because <laughs> he was doing four sessions a day for about and of course, thirty but years. If it's a Delia Derbyshire tune, it would, wouldn't even sound like him anyway because no, you yeah, distorted exactly. it and passed yeah. it through uh, you know a watering can or something. To so I mean, I mean, his last number one was um, the comic, Peter Kay's comic relief version of uh, the, you know Show Me the Way to Amarillo really? that, uh, yeah. in two thousand and five. So he was still working up. Until, up until that that point, but I think it's just there's something about those those figures, musicians particularly, you know, just the steady pair of, of sticks yeah. that, that Clay McCartney is there on all of these astonishing records. I mean, you know, he's on really, you really got me by the Kinks, uh, you know, lots of records that, that you know that you are constant on rotation on sort of oldie stations, and yet obviously he was just getting you know like day rates and and was a, you know as a solid force for for, for British pop. Fantastic, Clay McCartney, we salute you. So that brings us to the end of this particular show. Thanks to our guests Kate Mossman and Travis Elber for coming in. Pleasure to have you. Thank you. Um, you can read Kate and Travis in the new issue of Be There with Dali magazine. Get yours for free by going to facebook.com slash dali.loudspeakers. If you've enjoyed this edition, then you might like the other podcasts in this series. Just search Be There with Dali on your favourite podcast app or go to audioboom.com and search Be There with Dali for a direct download to whatever device you like to use. And we're on the Dali Facebook page as well. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next time. Be There with Dali Loudspeakers was presented by Andrew Harrison and the studio producer was me, Jack Farriman. Be There is a Podmasters production. Podmasters production.